0: to this week's Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. My guest is Cinzia Bianco, a visiting fellow at the European Council for Foreign Relations. Her most recent publication is How Europe Can Win the Buy-In of the Gulf Monarchies for Diplomacy with Iran, and it will be available very soon on the European Council for Foreign Relations website at ecfr.eu forward slash publications. Our conversation today focuses on the challenges Saudi Arabia faces with the kingdom heading into uncertain times as the Biden presidency looms. Chinzia, welcome back to the podcast.
1: Thank you very much, Bill.
0: Now, look, we are going to get to Joe Biden, but first there have been some rather interesting developments with the Qatar story, the, the blockade by the Saudis, the United Arab Emirates, Egypt and Bahrain. It's now more than three years on. But uh, interesting developments, as I say, Jared Kushner is in Doha. Uh, What's going on? What do you think is going to happen?
1: So I think there is a a high chance that uh, Saudi Arabia and Qatar uh, will come to an understanding about a transitional provisional framework that could lead potentially to a bilateral attend later Um, I think that the Saudis are evaluating the options and likewise the Qataris and the negotiations are now in an interesting final phase. Um, So it's very likely that we will see a small breakthrough there.
0: Hmm. When you say small breakthrough, what, what constitutes a small breakthrough as opposed to a big one?
1: I think that given how the crisis has become entrenched, both at the leadership level and at all levels of society, arguably, uh, what we're going to see is an agreement on a provisional and transitional framework, um, sort of a trial period to see if uh, there are the preconditions to move ahead with a more comprehensive detente. Um, So in this sense, it's still a small breakthrough because it will be very fragile, um, but it's nonetheless uh, a, a first step. I mean, I think it's uh, unrealistic to expect that such a crisis and in all of its different ramifications and involving so many different actors, both at the international and the domestic level, to be resolved in just one go. So um, it's it's going to be a step by step process.
0: Interesting. And as you say, the the wounds are are pretty deep uh, in all kinds of areas. Not least in in, in family areas, tribal areas, that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So there are different levels to this crisis. There is an economic level, of course. um, The economies of Qatar um, and the other Gulf countries uh, were extremely interlinked, and now they have been delinked. The society, and we have seen uh, uh, vitriolic speech and rhetoric on all sides, Um, So the people-to-people contacts that were pretty solid before 2017 are now really strained. Um, And at the same time, there's there's also a number of international controversies and even lawsuits um, opened by Qatar, advanced by Qatar uh, against uh, uh, the other countries that operated the political boycott and economic embargo and vice versa. So there are many levels um, of these crises uh, that have to be tackled. Um, But again, if uh, this small breakthrough goes uh, through, it it is an important first step, at least at the bilateral level between Saudi Arabia and Qatar.
0: Small steps, as you say. But look, if the Saudis are moving towards ending their blockade, what will the others do? And, And most particularly, the United Arab Emirates and Mohammed bin Zayed. Because after all, he was the main protagonist in launching this blockade.
1: Yes indeed and that's a very interesting angle to this because um we there is no indication that the UAE and Mohammed bin Zayed are also on board with this de-escalation process um and uh, uh, so it raises a, a whole lot of questions about uh, how it is going to look like in the region for Qatar and for Saudi Arabia and what, what is going to be the impact on relations between Saudi Arabia and the UAE, given that they have enjoyed a quite a strong um, security alliance and political partnership. However, I think that still um, it is unlikely that um, the UAE would openly, uh, if if the the negotiations between Saudi Arabia and Qatar actually go through, if it's unlikely that the UAE would uh, um, entrench its hawkish position at the regional level, I think that they will try to continue cooperating while acknowledging these differences uh, and between i mean saudi arabia and uh, and uh, UAE. But at least for the time being. So it's very clear in Abu Dhabi as well that this is going, this is the first step and that it's transitional. So I think for the time being, they will take a step back and just uh, uh, let it go through. But uh, in the second, you know, later, uh, we might see some actions from uh, the UAE to try and prevent this from becoming, for instance, a more sustainable and durable detente.
0: Interesting. And, and worthwhile watching the, the media in the UAE and, and the other uh, Gulf states as well, because they're very much a barometer of what the government uh, is thinking and how they're proceeding on this. So if the media in the UAE launches a vitriolic attack, then presumably that would be one signal. If, if they hold back, then perhaps that's another signal.
1: Yes, um, there, it's a very important point. Uh, monitoring the media and the public discourse, because indeed it does reflect uh, the political uh, uh, winds, if you will. So it's uh, it's very much worth looking for.
0: Well, let's look at some of the other challenges, because uh, as you said, the relationship between Mohammed bin Salman and Mohammed bin Zayed is a is a complex one in, in many ways, but but a solid one. This could put some strains on that. But he, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, has other challenges. Uh, First and foremost, the Yemen war, he wants out. Will the Houthis let him off the hook, do you think?
1: Yes, I mean, precisely. I think that um, this whole, the the, the different developments on the front of regional politics have to be seen through the prism of uh, the individual leaderships and their priorities and their uh, key interests. So um, I think it's very difficult to understand how the main actors in the Gulf crisis will position themselves if we don't um, look at it through um, the prism of, uh, for instance, Mohammed bin Salman's willingness to uh, patch up strained relations with the Joe Biden administration. And the, the war in Yemen is one of the major irritants, uh, in Washington vis-a-vis relations with Saudi Arabia. It has become now a very hot political topic, especially for, for the Democratic Party. Um, and this has reflected already in, in considerations and statements. From uh, key members of the Biden team. They all want uh, the war to be ended. And this really adds to the urgency that is already being felt in Riyadh to really uh, close the uh, military conflict and move ahead with uh, another phase of uh, political negotiations. Um, Saudi Arabia has been uh, trying to get out of Yemen for a few months now. Um, However, now in this new situation, this becomes really urgent. And the thing is that the Houthis and the regional and international allies, especially Iran, are perfectly aware of these dynamics. And therefore, it, they they do. There is a, a large a part of the Houthi leadership that thinks this is not the appropriate time to let the Saudis off the hook because uh, they could, if they Wait, they could extract more concessions at the political negotiations, and this is exactly what is going on because the Houthis are still pushing militarily in the Marib province, and and if they gain control over the Marib province, they would get access to more resources, including oil, um, but also they would act, uh, control a very strategic position from a geopolitical point of view and have even a bigger leverage over the Saudis um, in terms of controlling the border areas between Saudi Arabia and Yemen.
0: Mm. And the Houthis have been sending signals, haven't they, via, uh, well, this mining of the uh, oil tanker uh, off the coast in the South Red Sea and uh, the threats about missile, the ongoing threats of missile attacks and drone attacks, which the Saudis are very vulnerable
1: Yes, I mean uh, the there were there were two attacks recently. The one is the one you mentioned against a, a Greek tanker um, via a mine, uh, a sea mine, and then another one against an oil installation in Jeddah uh, um, with a, a missile attack. So that these two attacks were uh, uh, really um, another signal of how Saudi Arabia remains vulnerable to these kind of asymmetric operations, and also uh, had sort of fed into Riyadh's calculus about a whole lot of regional issues, not only the Yemen war, but also more uh, largely speaking, um, the ongoing confrontation with Iran. We know that the Trump administration is trying to uh, step up the pressure against Iran, and they have been trying to uh, garner the support of the regional partners, the UAE, Saudi Arabia, and Israel to coordinate operations against Iran. However, from a saudi point of view um it's 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 difficult uh, while they still maintain a, a high level of hostility vis-a-vis iran it's difficult to commit to uh more um to 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 sort of bigger operations uh because of these vulnerabilities and the fact that they cannot they feel they cannot rely on the us deterrence uh, on iran um, so these two attacks that, in uh, Saudi uh, eyes, uh, have been carried on with uh, Tehran's blessings, are also a measure of how the Saudis uh, are sort of waiting their options, but very cautious in terms of provoking an Iranian reaction.
0: Yes, Iran. It's. Um, I guess the question is how big a threat is Iran, or or is the bigger threat? Uh, To the Saudis, what an angry and vindictive Donald Trump might do in the the final days of his presidency. I mean, if he launched some sort of significant military attack, that would put the Saudis and, and the United Arab Emirates in a really dangerous place, wouldn't it?
1: Yes, precisely. That's their calculations. And, uh, um, you know, uh, from, from a Saudi and Emirati point of view, um, it's, a, it's a difficult time because they still want to very much balance between the Trump administration and the Biden administration. And this puts them both, but particularly Riyadh in a very uncomfortable position where they have to take stance, stances that can be, can seem contradictory because they have to simultaneously avoid alienating Trump, who is still president for a full month, uh, if not more, um, and, uh, and the Biden administration. That The two have, of course, completely different ideas in terms of regional affairs.
0: Yes, another problem for a moment try mandatory imbalance. But the economy, I mean, we look at Vision 2030, his grand plan to reform the economy and, and indeed society, that's stalling. Price of oil stuck at pretty much $40 a barrel. Managing OPEC+, Plus, which is tricky at the best of times. COVID-19 with its huge economic costs. I mean, these are big, big challenges. Will MBS meet the bar or do you think he's looking failure straight in the face?
1: So they are uh, huge challenges and uh, um, for the Saudi leadership and in particular Mohammed bin Salman, the risk of failing the expectations of the Saudi public in, uh, vis-a-vis the uh, Vision 2030 and economic diversification and job creation in particular for the Saudi youth are monumental. So MBS, um, what, it, what they have been doing is, first of all, they've tried to weather the storm uh, in the uh, the first months of COVID nineteen and trying to bring about an agreement at the level of OPEC plus, but that has been Insufficient so far because the economic recovery is still very far ahead. So, um, in very recent times, the, the decision has been to basically reorient invest investments from the public uh, investment fund, uh, Saudi Arabia's sovereign wealth fund, which is uh, headed by Mohammed bin Salman, uh, to the domestic economy. And so this could give some space some breathing space uh to the saudi economy if it is done properly and if it, if it is done quickly however if um pif's investments uh go exclusively uh, towards mega projects like the neom Fut- futuristic city or mega touristic resorts on the red sea coasts that is a problem because that doesn't translate into propping up the real economy in Saudi Arabia and certainly does not uh, translate into uh, creating jobs for the Saudi youth
0: yeah and that's the big one isn't it job creation as well as affordable housing and as you say Mohammed bin Salman seems to have um, an affection for these mega projects extremely expensive grandiose and uh, he may be running out of time.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, let's see. Uh, There is still, the Saudis have still shown the ability to whip up members of the OPEC plus group at this specific time. So they still have bought themselves some time, but certainly that direction is not encouraging.
0: Let's look at human rights abuses. Um, In particular, the case of Lujain al-Hatloul Tortured in detention. Now she's been remanded to a specialized court that deals with terrorism. I mean, there's already, already so much damage to the Saudi brand because of the human rights abuses. We mustn't forget Jamal Khashoggi's murder as well. What, what is MBS thinking?
1: So, um, I think this is an sort of a very delicate question because on one hand, we are talking about how Saudi Arabia is trying to reposition itself for a Biden administration. Um, on the other hand, we see that, uh, they are seem to be unwilling to walk back some of these cases that have caused a lot of stir in terms of uh, human rights abuses, uh, including and especially in the United States. And uh, the case of Lujan. I mean, uh, um, U.S. senators had written an open letter to the Saudi leadership just before uh, the case was transferred to the special court handling terrorism charges. So. I I think it sends a very clear message uh, that Riyadh is uh, maybe willing to tweak its uh, uh, position on regional affairs and consider um, a number of initiatives and ways to present itself as a constructive, reliable regional partner for the U.S., including for the Biden administration, but remains highly reluctant to give sort of concessions or um, to compromise on domestic affairs, and we have seen this attitude from uh, Mohammed bin Salman uh, for several years now. Uh, we all remember that um, they have decided to open diplomatic crises with the likes of Canada, uh, Germany, and even Sweden, because of comments uh, on uh, human rights abuses in Saudi Arabia, so they remain extremely sensitive in terms of everything that is connected and related to the domestic level.
0: Now, Mohammed bin Salman is is getting a lot of pressure to normalize with Israel. Um, just today, Saudi the Saudi Foreign Minister Prince Faisal bin Farhan reiterated the king's support for the Arab Peace Initiative. That's the return to the 67 borders East Jerusalem as the capital of Palestine and the evacuation of the settlements out of the West Bank. Um, And he said this too, the kingdom stresses the importance of a halt to settlement building by Israel on Palestinian land and supports what was stated in Security Council Resolution 2334, which affirmed that the Israeli occupation of settlements in the Palestinian land is a flagrant violation under international law and an obstacle to achieving a lasting and comprehensive peace. That's pretty clear, isn't it?
1: Yes, I mean, um the Trump administration, and in particular Jared Kushner, are still putting a lot of pressure on the Saudis to normalize relations with Israel. But I don't think this will go very far. First of all, normalizing relations with Israel remains still highly controversial um, in Saudi Arabia. Um, the Saudi public is still... Um, while we have seen changes in the attitude of the Saudi public, they largely remain very reluctant to go ahead with such a step. Um, the Arab-Islamic... Uh, public opinion, is even more reluctant, and this is a time where, you know, the Saudi leadership of the Arab Islamic world is still, feels contested from Riyadh's point of view by the likes of Turkey, for instance, and Iran. So, the Saudis know that if they normalize relations with Israel, this will become a political um, win, for Turkey and Iran uh in terms of uh, uh discrediting the Saudi leadership of the Arab Islamic world on top of all of these um there are uh, resist- there is resistance also on behalf of senior Saudi policymakers um in starting from King Salman but also other senior policymakers around the king so it's it's extremely difficult both domestically and regionally to do uh, to, to to do a step like that it's much easier to give trump another diplomatic victory uh, which is which would be the perception that they have been instrumental in negotiating a détente uh, with Qatar than to really give them what they're asking for, which is normalization with Israel. I mean, this will remain, this issue will remain on the table for a few years, I think, before it is actually uh, seriously considered.
0: Mm, Yeah, a step too far for Mahmoud bin Salman at this stage. And as you say, his father is very much uh, opposed to to the move. And as long as he's on the throne, then I I think it will be uh, unresolved. We've we've talked about Joe Biden, and I'm just thinking from a Saudi perspective, sitting in Riyadh, wondering what is going to come, because Biden talked about the Saudis as a pariah state. He's been very, very emphatic, as you say, and the Democratic Party in particular on the war in Yemen and human rights abuses. What must Riyadh be thinking? There must be some trepidation now.
1: Yeah, absolutely. There is a lot of trepidation and it's very clear that there are a host of issues that the Biden administration will prioritize. The first one is um, human rights um, and uh, and that we go back to the fact that the Saudis are remain uh, very reluctant to deal with uh, questions that uh, are directly connected to their domestic politics. And then there are a host of regional issues uh, where it's clear that the Biden administration and the Saudis do not see eye to eye. One of them is uh, uh, the crisis with Qatar, um, the war in Yemen, and then uh, the return to nuclear and regional diplomacy with Iran. So I think that right now the Saudis are considering options and uh, playing out scenarios uh, and signaling to the Biden administration where they would be, uh, where it would be easier for them to um, sort of get to a compromise uh, in between their own. Position uh, and their own policies so far, and the priorities of the Biden administration. So the war in Yemen um, is would be the first uh, item, uh, because as we said, the Saudis also want out. The second item we are seeing playing it uh, playing out these days would be a detente with Qatar and de-escalation with Turkey at the same time, so uh, not adding fuel to fire and to existing rivalries, um, the Saudis do remain more hesitant uh, towards diplomacy with Iran. Uh, their major concern is that if Biden returns to the JCPOA, um, then it will be extremely difficult to engage in follow-on negotiations on uh, questions of uh, regional security. And so even though the Biden team and a couple of uh, his advisors and key um, team um Members have said that they want to pursue regional security negotiations with Iran and Saudi Arabia at the table. The Saudis think that if the Iranians get uh, what they want, which is a return to the JCPOA, then it will be very difficult to push them to discuss um, other regional matters that are far more important for Riyadh than the nuclear negotiations.
0: Chintia, is there a role that the Europeans can play? as the Biden administration is looking at JCPOA 2.0 and other diplomatic issues. Is there a role that the Europeans can play in getting the GCC on side in terms of some of these uh, more positive uh, diplomatic initiatives?
1: I mean, I believe de-escalation in the Gulf is a monumental task. And so it will be imperative to get a joint U.S. and European effort to actually produce results uh, once there has been a, a return to the jcpoa or commitments uh, as indicated in the jcpoa by the united states and by Iran uh, and you know the parties want to and, and especially Washington wants to engage in follow-on negotiations i think the europeans will have to play an instrumental role in getting that parallel track of on regional diplomacy up and running um, the europeans have channels on both sides of the Gulf um, and they can they should use these channels to uh, engage the parties in discussing the hard security and geopolitical questions that are at the heart of regional tensions but in order to do so I think it's important that the Europeans further develop their role as security interlocutors in the region they are not viewed as security players right now um, on either side of the Gulf, um, and so the engagement should really uh, be stepped up. Uh, for instance, by uh, strengthening the France-led mission on maritime security in the Strait of Hormuz, and coordinating that mission with diplomatic initiatives by the EU and by core groups of European countries, including the United Kingdom.
0: Now, finally. In our first podcast with you, it was just after Sultan Haytham took over in Oman. Uh, has is our most successful podcast by a long shot, Jinzia. Uh, many, many people listen to it. But you spoke then about the challenges he faced, uh, we're coming up to his first year. Uh, how is he doing?
1: I mean, that's, that's great that he was, uh, that the, it was a, a successful podcast and that there is interest in Oman, uh, because it is a quite, uh, um, important country that doesn't receive as much attention. Um, I, I think that the challenges that we spoke about in the first podcast are still there very much. Um, I mean, the Omanis have not managed to find a way to overcome their financial problems. Um, and to attract investment and to uh, sort of revive an economy that was already stagnating, especially the I mean the private sector, and um, that has been severely hit by COVID-19. So all of these issues are still there. Um, the Omanis have, after they have tried to end to um, call for. A GCC-wide recovery fund, modeled after the one that was approved by the European Union, but in a Gulf ver- version, and they failed to to encourage that. Um, they have then resorted to bilateral channels, as we had uh, basically foreseen together in this podcast, and they have now uh, engaged in talks with Qatar and with the United Arab Emirates. Um, They have so far received, uh, according to um, media, the international media sources, they have now received $1 billion uh, from Qatar, uh, but they had to use that amount to cover for existing uh, debts that had to be repaid. Uh, and they have um, signed with the UAE um, a number of different smaller and larger agreements um, that are more commercial in uh, in their nature. So, for instance, they have received a $2 billion uh, interbank loan, that's a commercial loan, um, and then they have signed a number of projects guaranteeing uh, uh, smaller UAE investments in Oman. So we see uh, basically a number of things moving but nothing that can address really of the of the amount and and uh, and uh, resolution of their issues so i think that the issue there uh, what is going on there is that the omanis are resisting uh, receiving large amounts especially in the form of state aid because they are really too concerned that these would come with geopolitical uh, implications and demands uh, so they are still trying to uh, defend uh, as hard as possible their cap- capability to remain neutral but this is uh, proving more and more difficult
0: yeah and of course as the price of oil remains at 40 dollars and it looks like it's probably going to be stuck there or perhaps up to 50 that leaves the omanis uh, in, in a really difficult place and as you say the the whole legacy of neutrality that Haitham inherited from sultan Qaboos is, is really uh, in jeopardy
1: yeah absolutely um going forward Uh, I mean, the question is that uh, the Omanis don't seem to have good options. Um, And so I think it will all come to how much pressure there will be uh, in terms of uh, socioeconomic grievances and how quickly a post-COVID-19 recovery can can start. Um, So uh, I, I do think that uh, you know, in uh, in the long run, there is no good alternative to uh, resorting to more regional support.
0: Cinzia, thank you very much. Thank you. My guest today was Jinzia Bianco, a visiting fellow at the European Council for Foreign Relations. She was speaking to me from Berlin. We welcome your comments. If you're not already a member and you want to join the club, you can find out how by going to arabdigest.org. If you're a student... We have a new rate of £10 a month or £100 per year. And for academics and retirees, we are now offering a rate that amounts to a 70% discount. Check it out on ArabDigest.org. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading from independent sources.